If you have children, you know how impossible it can be to get them to remember to wash their hands, ever, let alone after they use the bathroom. If my son had it his way, he would eat everything with his hands, which would be marinated in weeks' worth of germs. Even after explaining to him 8,000 times that poop hands kill. That's the name of my next album, by the way. He would still happily eat a hot dog on the toilet if only I would let him. My son isn't quite nine years old, though. I can forgive his ignorance of basic hygiene. To a point. Mary Mallon, on the other hand, was a grown-ass adult who should have known better. And despite being told many times to wash her goddamn hands after using the shitter and before going back to work in the kitchens of wealthy families, she, for whatever reason, refused. As a result, she left scores of really sick people in her wake, killing a few along the way, and was forever dubbed Typhoid Mary. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who is eating sushi while writing this episode and can only hope the chef in whose hands my life sits thought to wash them thoroughly. Today, we'll go on a gut-churning journey through the turn of the century as a working-class Irish immigrant seeks her fortune in New York City, leaving behind her a trail of contagion and death. In August of 1906, wealthy banker Charles Henry Warren, his wife, and their children were vacationing for the summer in Oyster Bay, New York, when Mrs. Warren, two of her daughters, two maids, and a gardener all came down with typhoid fever. Typhoid fever, for those of you who, like me, try to spend as little time as possible knowing about gross shit that can kill you, is a type of food poisoning caused by salmonella. It's transmitted through urine or feces and causes fever, severe intestinal rumblings, diarrhea, and listlessness or delirium. According to thestraightdope.com, quote, typhoid has been a major killer for centuries. According to a documentary about typhoid Mary on PBS, the numbers are about one death out of every 10 infections. That's a lot of deaths. In New York City alone, at the turn of the 20th century, there were about 4,000 cases per year. Most cases were found in the super overpopulated Lower East Side of Manhattan, where thousands of European immigrants lived, crammed in filthy, unsafe, unsanitary tenements, often without proper plumbing, or any plumbing. When I say the living conditions down there were deplorable, I mean they were truly Dickensian. According to a piece about tenement living from the Smithsonian American Art Museum, quote, the Tenement House Act of 1901 helped to improve conditions for tenement tenants. The law required the removal of outhouses and the installation of indoor plumbing and lighting. These improvements proved costly and many landlords resisted making the necessary changes. To offset the cost, landlords increased the rent of their tenements. For those who could not meet their rent, they were swiftly evicted from their homes, their belongings unceremoniously dumped onto the sidewalks. But this was Oyster Bay, not the filthy Lower East Side of Manhattan. President Roosevelt vacationed in Oyster Bay, for God's sake. So when six of the 11 people in this one house came down with typhoid fever, the entire population of the well-to-do community was like, not in my house, Bob. And local health experts swooped in to find the cause of the sudden epidemic, which was normally associated with filthy poor people and not the well-heeled Oyster Bay set. 
The sewer water was dyed to see if it contaminated the drinking water. It didn't. The local shellfish and milk supply were examined, all to no avail. It is interesting to note how quickly and thoroughly problems are investigated when the people involved have money, isn't it? Thousands of people in the Lower East Side tenements were coming down with typhoid fever every year, and their response was basically a hearty shrug and a, what can you do? The owners of the home Mr. Warren had rented were concerned that having the reputation as the typhoid house was going to be bad for business. So they hired George Soper, a sanitary engineer who had come to be known as an epidemic fighter. According to his memoir, Soper said that after checking the notes on the previous investigation at Oyster Bay, The nearest explanation was that an old Indian woman who lived on the beach had brought polluted shellfish to the household. Check that off your bingo cards, kids. When in doubt, blame an old Indian woman. But this theory would not stand the rigorous inquiry which I gave it. Shocking. So, Soper turned his attention to the other members of the household and narrowed in on the cook, Irish immigrant Mary Mallon, who'd been hired by Mr. Warren on August 4th, just a few weeks before the first typhoid victim in the house fell ill. I tried to find out everything I could about her, but there was not much to learn. Mrs. Warren said she was a good plain cook, her wages were $45 a month, and that she'd been obtained from Mrs. Stricker's. Stricker's was a well-known employment agency on 28th Street. The cook had not fraternized with the other servants, and they knew little about her. She was not particularly clean. Her name was Mary Mallon. That was about all. I have a couple things to say about that. One, $45 in 1906 adjusted for inflation is about $1,500 a week, which means a lot of people in this country are making about as much as they did over a hundred years ago, which has nothing to do with anything really, but neither did the information about how much she was paid to begin with. Just something to put in your pipe and smoke. Two, she was not particularly clean. L-O-L. First of all, was anyone particularly clean in 1906? I mean, have you ever seen Gangs of New York? And addendum B, how filthy was she that it was outwardly and immediately noticeable? All I can think of is Pigpen from the Peanuts cartoons. Why is a well-known employment agency hiring out a cook who was, quote, not particularly clean? Of all the positions, cook seems pretty high up there on the please send someone clean list. Okay, so Stinky Mary was now in Soper's crosshairs, but he couldn't figure out how she was transmitting the typhoid bacteria considering that food is generally cooked, killing off most bacteria, including salmonella. Then, after going over Mary's menu for her time at the Warrens, he found the culprit, and I sincerely apologize ahead of time for ruining one of the last pleasures some of you may still have in this cruel, cruel world. The food that had made the six people in the Oyster Bay vacation home so sick was ice cream with fresh peaches. So, Soper did some old-school contact tracing and found out that, sure enough, everywhere that Mary went, her poop was sure to go. 
Soper found no fewer than seven families Mary had cooked for who had experienced sudden, inexplicable outbreaks of typhoid while Mary was cooking for them. In each case, Mary peaced out shortly after everyone got sick. To be clear, it's not like Mary knew she was the cause of the illnesses. She had no idea she was a one-woman salmonella factory. It's not like she was some comic book villain who was like, ha ha ha, I have struck again. But it does beg the question, why did she always seem to quit shortly after her employers got sick? And did she at any point even notice that people around her seemed to get the shits pretty frequently? Like, did that cross her mind at all? As for Soper, his ensuing hunt for Mary Mellon's stool would prove more difficult than he'd likely imagined. Four months after the Oyster Bay affair, Soper tracked Mary down, cooking for a wealthy family on Park Avenue. I don't know if he attempted to speak to her somewhere more private or ask if he could set up an interview with her, but their meeting ended up taking place in the kitchen of the family she was working for, and it basically went like this. Are you Mary Mallon? Who's asking? I'm an infectious disease expert, and I believe you've been making people ill and killing people with your pee-pee-poo-poo hands. W-U-T. What? I'm going to have to collect some of your poop in this jar, if you wouldn't mind. So Mary did what any self-respecting woman approached by some rando asking for her poop in a jar would do. She picked up a carving fork and chased him out of the house. Bear in mind, diseases were seriously misunderstood in the early 20th century. People hadn't quite grasped the idea that something invisible could jump from person to person causing illness and death. To be fair, here we are more than a century later and people are still struggling to understand that concept. So you can't blame her, really. She didn't have symptoms. Also, disease was associated with filth, understandably, and filth was associated with immorality, which makes sense if you believe cleanliness is next to godliness, which most people did back then. The converse of that statement, of course, is filthiness is next to deviliness or whatever. The implication being, if you were dirty, you were somehow less holy or moral, which is a super cool way to sow fear and hatred of poor people. Anyway. Soper figured out where Mary lived and brought an assistant with him one night where they waited at the top of the stairs by her boarding house door for her to come home. When Mary got home, she saw this fucking guy again and she was not pleased. When he again asked her to poop in a jar, she unleashed a torrent of slurs at him and his assistant as they fled back down the stairs away from her. Soper then somehow found out that Mary would be switching jobs soon and was worried he would lose track of her, so he reported her to the health department. And recommended that Mary Mallon be taken into custody. I wanted to have her excretions examined by Dr. William H. Park at the department's research laboratory. I called Mary a living culture tube and chronic typhoid germ producer. I said she was a proved menace to the community. It was impossible to deal with her in a reasonable and peaceful way, and if the department meant to examine her, it must be prepared to use force, and plenty of it. 
Where does Soper get off anyway, telling the health department enforcement agents or whatever to use force and plenty of it? I mean, we are talking about a lady whose crimes consisted of not washing her hands and not wanting to poop in a jar over here, not a lady Jack the Ripper. Like, can we calm down? Anyway, when that didn't work, Soper sent a female health inspector named Dr. S. Josephine Baker, unfortunately not the famous dancer, to get Mary's stool. But Mary still wasn't buying what they were selling, and female or not, Mary slammed the door in the doctor's face. So the next day, Dr. Baker returned with an ambulance and a handful of police officers prepared to take Mary by force, and plenty of it, But Mary was not having it, and she led them on an hours-long chase through the house. The other staff were like, haven't seen her, Bob. The chase then continued out into the snow, over the backyard fence, and into the backyard of the house next door, where they could see a bit of Mary's dress poking out of a crack in an outdoor closet, which I'm assuming is ye olde English for storage shed. Someone had blocked the door with a bunch of ash cans, Clearly, despite Soper concluding that Mary didn't have a lot of friends, she had accomplices. She fought and struggled and cursed. I tried to explain to her that I only wanted the specimens and that then she could go back home. She again refused, and I told the policeman to pick her up and put her in the ambulance. This we did, and the ride down to the hospital was quite a wild one. Well... Wouldn't you know, the tests came back, and sure enough, Mary was a healthy carrier of the typhoid bacteria. Plot twist, right? All those years she was not washing her hands while cooking for the well-to-do, she was just smearing typhoid all over their ice cream and peaches. So they sent Mary off to Willard Parker Hospital, which was basically a modern-day leper colony. I called on her there. She had been placed in one of the outside isolation wards. In view of her actions when arrested, she was regarded as a dangerous and unreliable person who might try to escape if given the chance. So she was locked up. It was not an attractive or particularly comfortable room, and there was no reason why a strong, active woman of 40 who felt herself to be in perfect health should be contented with it, and Mary Mallon was not. The room, with its white walls and ceiling and floor, the white bed and the white bathrobe which Mary was wearing, gave the curiously healthy and fearfully angry-looking person a startling appearance. I'm going to venture a guess that it was also that she was super angry that gave off the startling appearance, but (laughs) what do I know? Mary, I said, I've come to talk with you and see if between us we cannot get you out of here. When I have asked you to help me before, you have refused. And when others have asked you, you have refused them also. You would not be where you are now if you had not been so obstinate, so throw off your wrong-headed idea and be reasonable. Nobody wants to harm you. You say you have never caused a case of typhoid, but I know you have done so. Nobody thinks you have done it purposely, but you have done it just the same. Many people have been made sick and suffered a great deal. Well, I continued, I will tell you how you do it. When you go to the toilet, the germs which grow within your body get upon your fingers, and when you handle food and cooking, they get on the food. People who eat this food swallow the germs and get sick. If you would wash your hands after leaving the toilet and before cooking, there might be no trouble. 
You don't keep your hands clean enough. Mary's expression did not change, nor did she utter a word. And actually, you have to hand it to Mary here. It's not every day that someone tells you you have been repeatedly feeding people actual shit. I don't know how she maintained her composure. Like, at all. Soper went on. The germs are probably growing in your gallbladder. The best way to get rid of them is to get rid of the gallbladder. You don't need a gallbladder any more than you need an appendix. There are many people living without them. Again, Bob, good intentions, but poor delivery. You can't just be like, hey, who needs it, when you're talking about someone's organs. Chances are really good that Mary was either Catholic or Protestant, having immigrated from Ireland. And I'm no religion expert, but I'm pretty sure people with a lot of faith and not much education are likely to believe that God put everything in their bodies for a reason, and we shouldn't just go taking parts out willy-nilly. I don't know. Also, not for nothing, she was probably like, what the fuck is a gallbladder and how dare you accuse me of having one? Little did Mary know, removing the gallbladders of people unknowingly carrying around typhoid actually doesn't do much good. In his defense, I don't think Soper knew this yet either. It would be another 17 years or so before doctors were like, uh, our bad, the gallbladder's innocent. And still, Mary was like, no dice. So Soper, in what my opinion is a really confusing move, offered to write a book about Mary? Like, as an enticement to carve out her organs? Soper promised her all of the profits, but still. I don't think Mary was going to be too keen on, like, publicizing her status as the poop queen of New York City. No offense. Even if he said he would protect her identity, I can see why she wouldn't buy it. As I finished with my back there against the door, Mary rose. She pulled her bathrobe about her and, not taking her eyes off mine, slowly opened the door of her toilet and vanished within. The door slammed. I love that the end of this encounter is her locking eyes with this dude while she presumably goes off to lay a deuce. I only wish she would have said, Stick around, Doc. I'll make you some of my famous ice cream and peaches. So, Mary, you can't have my gallbladder melon, was transferred to even more of a modern-day leper colony, a hospital on North Brother Island, located in the East River, halfway between the Bronx and Rikers Island. She was set up in a little bungalow situated right on the riverbank, complete with a living room, kitchen, bathroom, gas, modern plumbing, and electricity. Food was delivered to her, and she cooked, ate, and yes, quarantined alone. Now, all the trauma of missing out on these last two years aside, is it just me or does that sound like an actual dream? You're going to let me live rent-free on a secluded island and bring me my food? And I get river views? Yes, please, sign me up. Let me grab my notebook and pen and I'm ready to go. And these five suitcases of books. And maybe my PlayStation. But dear God, not the internet. Thank you. Mary had a different feeling about the situation. Why should I be banished like a leper and compelled to live in solitary confinement with only a dog for a companion? Girl, you got to have a dog too? Wow. 
In June of 1909, two years after being isolated on North Brother Island, Mary hired a lawyer. I love this part. She was basically like, fuck this shit, I'm suing. The lawyer went about building a case for unlawful imprisonment, and rumors began to circulate that newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst was paying her legal fees, which, on the face of it, seems really charitable and generous. Until you consider the headline of the article he splashed on the front of the Hearst-owned New York American that read, quote, Typhoid Mary, the extraordinary predicament of Mary Mallon, a prisoner on New York's quarantine hospital island. And while the article was generally sympathetic to Mary, it did describe her as, quote, a living, walking incubator of typhoid fever germs, which is like, okay, simmer down. But even worse was the accompanying full-page drawing of Mary cooking, wait for it, a bunch of tiny human skulls in a skillet. I literally can not. Sometimes people ask me why I'm so angry. From now on, I'll just refer them to this episode. So, Mary's nickname, Typhoid Mary, which had actually been given to her in 1908 at a medical conference, I guess patient zero wasn't catchy enough? became cemented in the zeitgeist, not to mention the implication that she was some sort of nefarious, dark arts witch cheerfully cooking baby skulls. In the article, bacteriologist Dr. William Park admits that while 50 other patients have been identified as healthy carriers of typhoid, only Mary was kept in quarantine. To be fair, the other 49 people weren't cooks and, not for nothing, probably had better hygiene habits than our friend Mary. So, Mary, most likely not a witch Malin, was like, oh, <laughs> you thought I was going to sue you before? Now watch. She wrote a letter to her lawyer in response to Dr. William Park's statements about her. In it, she said, I have been, in fact, a peep show for everybody. Even the interns had to come to see me and ask about the facts already known to the whole wide world. The tuberculosis men would say, there she is, the kidnapped woman. Dr. Park has had me illustrated in Chicago. I wonder how they said Dr. William H. Park would like to be insulted and put in a journal and call him or his wife Typhoid William Park. And I'm not going to go too much into it, but it's a pretty well-known fact that women, usually poor women, especially women of color, experience this kind of treatment to this day. There is a perverse lack of respect shown towards certain members of the population when it comes to medical treatment. But I digress. In court, Mary's lawyer pointed out that Mary was being held prisoner with zero due process. She had never been charged or convicted of any crime. She hadn't even been afforded a trial until she herself sued. Dr. Park testified that Mary was a menace to society. And the court was like, uh, this is above our pay grade, and dismissed the case. And, like... I'm no lawyer, but... In a piece about this on PBS, Dr. Baron Lerner, a doctor of public health, said, quote, Historically, courts have almost always sided with public health departments, be it typhoid fever, be it tuberculosis, be it other infectious diseases, because the fear of the spread of infectious diseases is so dramatic. Long, dramatic pause for effect. 
Almost three years after being sequestered on North Brother Island, Mary caught a break when New York City Health Commissioner Ernst J. Letterall decided to release Mary under the condition that she, quote, give up her vocation of cook, not handle the food of others, observe various other precautions, and report to the department every three months. Mary was like, yep, got it, will do. And then he said she had to agree to have her gallbladder removed, and she was like, nope. And he basically shrugged his shoulders and was like, okay, deal. And Mary was released. But it's not like they offered to help Mary learn a new skill. They were like, off you go, into the world. You can't do the one thing for work that you know how to do, though. (laughs) Good luck. And she was on her own. Mary tried working as a laundress. I would say launderer, but that sounds like she was laundering money, which as far as we know, she wasn't. She hated doing laundry because doing laundry is literally the worst. It also paid terribly. The health department kept track of Mary for the first four years or so after her release. But then in 1914, Mary blooped herself off the radar and they were like, uh, oops. In his book, Soper wrote, On her release, Mary promptly disappeared. She violated every detail of the pledge she had given the Department of Health. And I just want to interject that she didn't disappear promptly, and she didn't violate every pledge she had given. She tried making it work for four years before disappearing, so credit where credit is due, dude. Soper went on, She changed her name and went back to cooking again, under the name of Marie Breshoff, and sometimes Mrs. Brown. Mary now cooked in hotels, restaurants, and sanatoria. At one time, she ran a cheap rooming house, but kept it so badly that it failed to pay. She tried ironing, but found cooking paid better. The world was not very kind to Mary. I mean... You didn't exactly help in that arena, Bob. Under various aliases, Mary jumped from one cooking job to another, likely spreading typhoid wherever she went, including, in a beautiful example of irony, to a man for whom she made an indigestion remedy. Yet, instead of feeling better after Mary's health tonic, he too ended up in the hospital with typhoid. In 1915, Soper was contacted by a doctor at Sloan Hospital for Women, where Mary was cooking under a pseudonym. More than 20 people had gotten sick during Mary's time, and some of the staff had jokingly started referring to her as Typhoid Mary, not knowing that she actually was Typhoid Mary. And I just want to highlight here that Mary, who had been expressly warned against cooking for people, had not only taken a job as a cook, but had taken a job as a cook in a hospital. I mean, that takes guts. So, once again, Mary was arrested and taken to North Brother Island to live the rest of her life in relative solitude. And it seems like at this point, she basically resigned herself to her fate, probably because she went back out into the real world where she had to try to make a living without doing the things she knew how to do best, albeit without washing her hands before doing it, and realized that living rent-free without having to work and having your food brought to you is nothing to look down your nose at. It never seemed like she had many friends at all, and she had no family, so it's not like she was some wild and crazy extrovert for whom solitude would be a particularly cruel punishment. Still, though, 
At the end of all this, Mary infected an estimated 122 people, five of whom died. At the turn of the century, bacterial and viral infections and foodborne illnesses were at an all-time high. These types of illnesses remain a danger even today, but my, how things have improved where sanitation and hygiene are concerned. Mary's story, complete with all of its gross, ridiculous, and I'll admit it, sometimes hilarious drama, speaks to something wider, though. Public health crises are all-hands-on-deck affairs. They're system failures in this unpredictable world of ours. Sure, Mary should have washed her hands, but those in power should have more diligently played their part in building better infrastructure for those most vulnerable to disease. We need to watch out for each other, and that requires participation from folks at the top, too. Perhaps the most strange and unexplained piece of all this is that we somehow trick ourselves into blaming the typhoid Marys of the world for some of nature's most unwieldy fates. Anyway, wash your damn hands. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, we'll take a trip to the happiest place on Earth to discover what darkness lurks just beneath the shiny facade at Disney's theme parks. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actor for this episode was Luther Creek. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 